I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This morning I want to speak to you about a very exciting and profound subject, namely the fullness of Christ in the redeemed. Resurrection Sunday, a wonderful time to ponder the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection from the dead. And I pray this morning that as we reflect upon the majesty of Christ and the unfathomable love for us that he has, that through what is said this morning, the embers of of apathy and forgetfulness that sometimes creep within our hearts will be fanned into the red-hot flames of praise and worship this morning. It's sad, I fear, that the vast majority of the world has no appreciation for what this day represents. The vast majority of the world does not understand what Christ has done because they have no grasp, frankly, of the depth of their sin. Thus, they see no need for a Savior. And many times they are offended when you even approach that subject. But may I remind you of a few theological points, if you can bear with me for a moment, because what I want to do is to remind you very clearly of the basic principles of salvation. Because unless you grasp these, then even for we as Christians, today we'll lose some of its significance. Because I fear that many times, even as Christians, we tend to get lost in, in the fog of, of neo-evangelicalism's concern to be relevant rather than to be truthful. And so, therefore, I want to remind you of a few things before we look at this text. First of all, the Word of God teaches us that man is totally unable to save himself. Because of depravity, all that man is and all that man does is fundamentally offensive to God. In fact, because of condemnation, man enters life already under the sentence of divine wrath because of sin that was committed in Adam. The Bible teaches us that even because of of our alienation, man is set in rebellion against God from his birth. Because of our corrupted will, apart from God's convicting power, our choices, our will is fully set to do all manner of evil against God. As we look at Scripture, we see that salvation is accomplished from beginning to end and in all of its parts by God alone. An amazing thought in and of itself. Salvation originates in the plan of God. Salvation is made possible by the grace of God. In fact, salvation is brought to completion solely by the power of God. Indeed, every aspect of of any man's salvation, any woman's salvation, from regeneration all the way to glorification is ultimately the work of God alone. And as we look at Scripture, we see that the supreme and ruling motivation of God 
in man's salvation is his own glory. Quite honestly, we are somewhat incidental to that whole thing, as glorious as it is for us. God receives glory by the dramatic display of his attributes, even at Calvary. And his glory will only increase throughout eternity by the blessedness of those who had been bound for hell, but were now rescued by his grace and by his power. Now, these are just the basic fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian, of what salvation is all about. And on this Resurrection Sunday, again, I wish to stir your hearts afresh with what Christ has done for all who have placed their faith in him. So this morning I have chosen for my text Colossians chapter 2. I want to begin with verse 8 and we'll go through verse 15. Follow along as I read Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let me give you a bit of the context here before we look deeply into this text. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was infiltrated with a number of different heresies, including the heresies of legalism, mysticism, and even asceticism. In fact, one of the Jewish groups that you may remember that really rose out of this era was the sect called the Essenes. And all of these perversions of truth that Paul dealt with, quite frankly, continue to corrupt people even to this day. It was a cauldron of deception that really made up a deadly brew later called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was basically this transcendent knowledge that only a few select few, only the highly educated, only the real elite initiates could possibly understand. Only a few could ever ascend to this superior state of spirituality. And frankly, elements of all of this garbage is still found in every false religion of the world today. From Roman Catholicism to Scientology. 
from Mormonism to Buddhism, from Islam to the extreme ends of Pentecostalism, you see the same stuff just in various forms. Now, basically, the early forms of Gnosticism taught what was called a philosophic dualism. They basically believed that a man's spirit is good, but his body is bad. And so we need to do something to transcend this body of evil And they had all kinds of ways of doing this, everything from orgies to alcoholism to you name it. And obviously, therefore, they scoffed at the notion of the incarnation of Christ. I mean, what a fool would believe that somehow God would take on this evil body, this form of a man. God would never do that. So the idea that Jesus was the God man was a hard pill for them to swallow. Moreover, they rejected the idea that Jesus was the embodiment of truth. Now, it's sad. Many continue to this day to be, as verse 8 tells us here, taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. The word captive is interesting here. It's really a compound word in the original language, one of which means booty, and the other means to carry off or to kidnap. So what he's saying here is like great spoils of war. Ignorant people are being carried off as slaves of deception. By the way, the same term was used in 2 Timothy 3.6 where Paul warned of those deceivers who enter the households or enter into households and captivate. There it is again. Captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. So the Apostle Paul here is warning about these false teachers who have come into the church and are trying to kidnap people, so to speak, through philosophy. And again, the philosophy that he was referring to was that of of a mixture of legalism and mysticism and asceticism. And also with empty deception. The original language indicates this term means a con or, or a trick or a fraudulent speculation. We're used to that. We hear it all the time. Some kind of a spin to get you to believe something that's not necessarily true or maybe totally false. And so these people were using empty deceptions that they had concocted in their minds that sounds very deep and very rich and very spiritual. But they were lies. And then he describes two sources of these counterfeits in verse 8. He says, number one, they're from the tradition of men, according to the tradition of men. The, the, The term according to the tradition of men here, is one that means that which is given one to another. It's the idea of people handing something down, somebody giving one thing to another. And you stop and think about it. Millions of people today naively believe that just because their ancestors believed a certain thing, well, therefore, it must be true. People continue to believe that. That's tradition. But also these counterfeits came from, number two, the elementary principles of the world. Elementary here, again, in the original language, has the idea of something that is rudimentary, something that is uh, simplistic, something that is, is banal or unsophisticated, undeveloped, like the thoughts of an immature child. That's what he's saying this stuff is. And indeed, if you think about it, all of the religions... In the world today that are false religions merely have yet one other variation on the same theme. 
salvation by works. Here's what you've got to do to get to heaven. Here's what you've got to do to please God. Even after thousands of years, man continues to invent his own God, one that he can understand. And today, even in evangelicalism, we see that. We've got this new smiley face Jesus that I say winks at sin. This easily manipulated Jesus that's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all of that silly stuff. People today continue to devise their own theology, try to put it in some neat little package, one that minimizes the seriousness and consequences of sin and makes us look a whole lot better than the way God would see us. And certainly a theology that puts us in charge and God merely the responder to our whims. And all of this is merely the elementary principles. And frankly, dear friends, when you compare the truth of the gospel of Christ with all of this stuff, it looks like the drawings of a child compared to Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. So Paul refutes all this nonsense regarding the person and the work of Christ. And in verse 9 he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Now folks, I want you to listen very carefully. Because I have found over the years that many Christians do not understand some of the astounding truths that we find here in this text. What a staggering testimony here, exalting the majesty and the excellency of Christ, refuting the blasphemies of the heretics. Now think of this. Notice how he says the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete. The word fullness. I want to be technical for a moment, but you'll understand this. The term in Greek comes from the word fullness, pleroma. Now here's what the heretics thought of that day. That there was a divine pleroma, or, or the fullness of divine powers and attributes that somehow manifested themselves differently within various emanations or spirits, angelic beings, that type of thing. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. The entire pleroma is solely and completely concentrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. It dwells there. And the grammar indicates that it continuously dwells there. Indeed, Christ is the head over all rule and authority. Now, folks, this is going to bring us to the, the real heart of what I want to share with you here this morning. The thrilling realities that we are about to see. Now, notice this amazing statement tucked into the middle of, of the Apostle's great refutation here in verse 10. He says, and in him you have been made complete. Well, my, what does that mean? You're a child of God. Here you need to place your hand on your heart and, 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 and just be utterly dismayed at what is about to be revealed. I, I hope this will grip your heart. I hope you will begin to feel it race within you with wonder and praise. Here's what's going on. The language here reveals an astounding truth. Here's what it is. Even as the fullness of God was in Christ Jesus and continues to be in Christ Jesus, since we are united to Christ, all of that same fullness is ours also. All we will ever need for eternity to know and to serve and to enjoy God has been imparted to those who are united to Christ in faith. That's the reality of this. Thus, you have been made complete. 
It's interesting here. Um, the, the term here, you have been made complete, it even sounds like it in the Greek. Peplerominoi. It even sounds like the plerimo. That means been made complete. It's from the, the, the root verb plereo. And this is the root word from which the Greeks got the word pleroma. So the point is, even as the pleroma or the fullness of God dwells in Christ, we are literally filled with his pleroma because we are united to him. Thus, we have been made complete in him. An astounding thought. In fact, John tells us in John 1.16, for of his fullness, in other words, of his pleroma, we have all received and grace for grace. In other words, it's just astounding. It's grace on top of grace on top of grace. Charles Spurgeon has said it so well. He says, and I quote, you have everything in Christ that you ought to want. You are fully furnished, completely supplied and equipped for all future service. You need not go to Christ for the supply of some of your needs and then go elsewhere for the supply of other needs. But ye are complete in him. Now, as I think about this, maybe you're this way right now, I would be asking the question, well, I want to know more. What does it mean to be complete in Christ? I mean, I understand this fullness and this completeness, but practically speaking, what does this mean? Well, dear friends, we find in verses 11 through 15 here in this text that there are three specific ways that Christ has made us complete in him. Three ways in which we experience the divine pleroma, the fullness of Christ. Let me give them to you and I will elaborate on them. Number one, he energizes our new nature. Number two, he gives us spiritual life. And number three, he has disarmed our enemies. And I confess, my friends, that this is beyond my ability and my feeble language to somehow express these staggering truths. But I feel nonetheless God would have me do so. And I just trust his Holy Spirit to somehow make them clear and stir your hearts with his glory. First of all, I want you to marvel with me at the reality that he energizes our new nature. Notice verses 11 and 12. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, let me explain this to you. This is a curious statement, certainly in our culture. But as we look into the Old Testament, we know that God commanded his covenant people that on the eighth day of a little boy's, after a little boy's birth, that Jewish child was to be circumcised. And this was not only a sign that he was now to be a, a member of that covenant nation, but more importantly, the cutting away of the male foreskin of his reproductive organ symbolically demonstrated that all that he will ever produce will be sinful. And therefore, man is in need of a deep cleansing. And indeed, every child is born a sinner. Every man is in desperate need of a deep cleansing. Every woman, every child, a cleansing of the heart, a work that only God could ultimately do. In fact, God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. 
saying, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And he also commanded the men of Judah through Jeremiah in chapter 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Now, it's important. That external rite was absolutely meaningless unless it reflected an inward reality. And we see this in other passages of Scripture, especially when Paul spoke to this issue in Romans 2.29 when he says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. Now, please understand, because we are, as Christians, complete in Christ, we have been, according to verse 11, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Folks, here's what this is saying. Because of what Christ has done for us, by removing the dominance of the flesh, we are no longer dominated by our flesh. It it, it has been removed, you see. Christ has done that. If any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's what? He's a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, the new things have come. You see, friends, he has given us a new nature. This is a remarkable change that many times we take for granted. Think about it for a second. Think of the things that the world finds appealing. And those very things are the things that we typically find appalling. I have no desire in my heart to go out and party and to get drunk and to throw up and and to chase women and and to chase all of the, the things that the world has to offer, to be envious of other people and, and greedy and, and deceitful and, and materialistic and all that type of stuff. I, matter of fact, especially as I grow in Christ, the more I see of this world, the more I want to get away from it. I, I'm, I'm looking for another place. Why? Because the Lord has removed the foreskin of my heart, so to speak. That's the issue here. He has energized my new nature because I'm complete in him and that fullness of his is also mine. Now, one of the things that that means is I've got a completely new nature. We as Christians are radically different than those who do not know Christ. And practically speaking, this is why we have an impossible time being tolerant like so many people would want us to be. This is why we can't be tolerant of other faiths. There's only one true faith. It's Christianity. Every other faith will ultimately lead to hell. This is why we cannot tolerate immorality. Things like homosexuality and pornography and all of those types of things. Or other forms of wickedness that God hates. Why? Because By God's grace, we have been made complete in Christ. We now have eyes to see the truth. We have hearts to love it and to defend it and to live it. You see, we can no more be tolerant of the things that the world demands than they can love the things that we love. It's an impossibility. The world's political and moral agendas are as repulsive to us as is our commitment to God's word is to them. Why? Because we're complete in Christ. 
because he's energized a new nature. As human beings, we have been supernaturally altered. Notice in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, folks, let's be careful here. Let me digress for a moment. Paul is not replacing the rite of circumcision with that of baptism, as if water baptism could somehow change our spiritual condition. In fact, he argues just the opposite, both here and in many other passages, that water baptism has no more saving power than circumcision. Water baptism is merely an outward expression of an inward condition, namely that we have died to sin, we have been buried with Christ, and now resurrected to newness of life. So this is speaking to this astounding transformation because in verse 12, he says, we have been raised up with him through faith. Now, look at this in the working of God. Energia is the Greek term for working. We get our word energy from that. In other words, what he's saying here is the same supernatural power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us. You see, what an incredible thought. It's now at work in us. That same energy that raised him from the dead. No, child of God. This is the fullness of God that is in us that makes us complete in him. Thus, he has energized our new nature and continues to do so. A nature that loves what he loves and hates what he hates. We are a new creation that will never need to be somehow recreated to make us fit to live in the sinless presence of his glory forever. Right now, in fact, if we could see the glory that is ours because of the fullness of Christ, we would not be able to look upon it. It's a glory that is beyond description. But notice yet another benefit of this divine fullness making us complete in Christ. Not only does He energize our new nature, but secondly, He gives us spiritual life. Notice in verses 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, friends, the word of God teaches us, for example, in Ephesians 2:1, that before Christ saves us, before he saved us, I should say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's why, for example, people um, who are without Christ, if they were listening to me right now, they would be bored completely out of their mind because none of this has any relevance to them. They have no heart for Christ. They, have, they, they don't hear his voice. They don't want to hear his voice. Why? They're spiritually dead. Like an Egyptian mummy. Before we were saved, we were wrapped up with the grave clothes of, of every imaginable sin, utterly unable to respond to God. We were slaves to our lusts. We were bound up, as it were, by, by Satan's spiritual deceptions. Nothing more than a rotting corpse of spiritual death enveloped in the filthy rags of unrighteousness. And we were too dead to even know our condition. This is the state of many of my family and friends and yours as well. 
Indeed, we were dead in our transgressions, as it says here in verse 13. Unable to respond to truth. We, we lived in the realm of the spiritually dead. That's the idea here. We see this every day. Millions of spiritual mummies bound by countless false religions. Oh yes, man has the capacity to understand and know many things. He, he will even know many spiritual and religious things. But dear friends, apart from the regenerating, life-giving power of God, he will never exercise his will and seek forgiveness of sins and place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as his Savior and serve him as Lord. He will never do that unless God does something to him. Rather, he will continue to live in opposition to God and he will constantly replace the glorious gospel of Christ where Christ has accomplished all for us with some contrived, concocted version of salvation by works. And thus he will remain spiritually dead. And unless he repents, he will be that way throughout eternity. Nonetheless, in the inscrutable mysteries of God, man is still responsible to believe and be saved. And by God's grace, he can be. And notice, by the grace of God here in verse 13, He made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. You see, friends, now catch this. God did that for us. Something that we could not have done for ourselves. He gave us spiritual life. Think about this as we, we think of this Resurrection Sunday morning. When, when God breathed life into His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, causing him to, to rise from the dead and to discard those grave clothes. And, and just as the angel came to roll away that stone from his sepulcher, on that glorious resurrection morning, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out from that tomb and he could say, because I live, so shall you. This is the idea here. And on that day, He made us alive together with Him. Hallelujah! That's what it says here in this text. Now think about this, folks. Where would you be if God had not made you alive? Had He not energized this new nature? Think of your unregenerate state. The Word of God gives a characterization of people without Christ. Let me just give you some of them. They're filled with dirty talk, silly talk, coarse jesting. They're unthankful, ignorant, deceived by empty words, sons of disobedience, and they walk in darkness. Let me give you some more. It's just out of Romans 1, beginning in verse 28. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where we would be. But dear Christian, think of this. In some mystical way that we will never comprehend, we have been delivered from all of this. The grave clothes that would have been ours have been removed. I mean, talk about the fullness of Christ in the redeemed. What a glorious thought. Oh, beloved, what, what an inconceivably glorious gift. 
that we've been made complete in him because, as verse 13 says, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I mean, what joy should flood our souls because of this? I think of the psalmist in Psalm 32, 1 that said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, folks, let that soak in for a second. He has forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, he goes on and he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. Mine. Now, this adds a whole new dimension to this. Let me explain what this is saying. The term certificate of debt, chirographos in the original language, it, it really means an autograph or that which has been written by hand, something that is handwritten. You see, what he's saying here is that our personal signature was, so to speak, affixed to a certificate of debt, literally in our own handwriting, acknowledging to God all that we owed. That's what he's saying here. And all of us know what it's like to sign on some bottom, bottom line, right? In some contract, and now we are obligated to that. Well, this is not just the signature. It's as if we wrote the whole contract and signed it in our own handwriting. And that certificate that we have written, that certificate of indebtedness, he says, consisted of decrees. In the original language, this is a reference to the Mosaic Law. By the way, it's also described in Ephesians 2.15 as the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Now, this, according to our text, was a certificate of debt that is hostile to us. And we all know that the wages of sin is death. The scripture teaches that even one violation of God's holy standard, his holy law condemns us to eternal judgment, eternal damnation. Indeed, in Galatians 3.10, we read, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the laws to perform them. Now, folks, that's the bad news, but here's the good news. Verse 14 at the end there, he says, he has taken it, taken it out of the way. Literally, it means he has canceled it out. He says, having nailed it to the cross. Now, you need to understand this. It was customary in those days of the Roman Empire. When a person was crucified, they would take a list of his offenses, the charges against him, and they would write them and tack them up over his head on the cross, publicly declaring his crimes as well as his or her guilt. In fact, they did this to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will recall in Matthew 27 and verse 37, it says, And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is the Jesus, or this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. But, now think of this, for those who have confessed Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, whose sins are forgiven, all of the charges that we would have owed were instead charged to our precious Savior. And they were nailed to the cross above His head when he willingly became the propitiation or the satisfaction of divine wrath, something that should have been ours. He was the perfect appeasement that satisfied God's holy justice. 
Well, that's marvelous in and of itself to think that what was handwritten in our certificate of death of debt has now been nailed on the cross and he's paid for it. But the text goes on and says something more. What it tells us here is that the idea of it being taken out of the way also has the idea of of being canceled out or erased. A little bit different than nailed to the cross. That's one thing. But not only that, it has been erased. Now, here, here's what you must understand. You see, the ink in those days was unable to soak into the papyrus or to the animal skins that they used for documents. Therefore, it was, it was easy to erase. And so you could wipe off the ink and, and reuse the material. And this is precisely the meaning here behind the Greek term exalepho, which means to take out of the way or to cancel out or erase. Now, dear friends, grasp this. Not only were our crimes against the holiness of God nailed to the cross of Calvary, but Jesus has permanently erased our handwritten acknowledgement of guilt on the certificate of debt. No longer are we under obligation to repay God for our violation of the law. Christ has done all of that for us. And if you think about it, our handwritten acknowledgement of our violations, even of the Ten Commandments, would say something like this. Yes, I have been an idolater, especially worshiping myself. Yes, I have used your name in vain, many times even in ignorance, attributing things to you that were not true and denying you things that were. Yes, I am guilty of not honoring my father and my mother. Yes, I am guilty of murder and adultery, at least in my heart. Yes, I have stolen from others things that belong to them that I wanted for myself. Yes, I have spoken falsely of my neighbor. Yes, I have coveted my neighbor's possessions and had thoughts and desires in my heart where I wanted what my neighbor had. But now, dear friends, because of this, God has erased all of that. The law no longer condemns us. The certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross and there is absolutely no trace of our indebtedness on the document. It's gone. Jesus paid it all. As the chorus goes, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Dear friends, if you're here today without Christ, your name is still on the note. Your name is still on the note and you must pay. And only a fool would consider such a thing. When the Lord Jesus would gladly pay it for you. All you need to do is to ask. Now back to those of us whose sins have been forgiven. As we stand in awe here at what Christ has accomplished we look at the fullness of Christ in the redeemed, you think, well, what more could be ours? He, he's energized our new nature. He's given us a spiritual life. All of the glories of heaven await us. What more could be ours? Well, thirdly, the text says that he's done something else. He's disarmed our enemies. He has disarmed our enemies. This is something else that took place when our debt was erased and nailed to the cross. Look at verse 15. 
when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, folks, there are two important biblical truths that come to mind here. One is that we know that between our Lord's death and resurrection, he made a fascinating visit to a group of evil fiends. We read about this in 1 Peter 3.19, where it says that he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, let me explain this for a moment so you understand what's going on. You see, all through Scripture we read of God incarcerating certain demons in a pit, in the abyss, specific demons that he found especially vile. We read about this, for example, in 2 Peter 2.4, when it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude, verses 6 and 7, further describes these monstrous fiends to whom Jesus appeared between his death and resurrection as angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he goes on to compare them to homosexuals. In verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, just briefly, let me help you recall what the scriptures teach. These demons are confined to the pit. And these are the ones who tried to have sex with human females in the days of Noah. We read about this description in Genesis chapter 6. And this was probably a diabolical effort to contaminate the human race and produce some kind of a mongrel breed of half-human, half-demon, thus preventing the promised seed of Eve, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ, from ever descending from her line, thus spoiling the possibility of the incarnation of Christ, the perfect one who was promised to come through that line and crush Satan's head. There's much more that could be said about this, but the point is God was so incensed with these demons that at that point he incarcerated them in this pit and then sent the flood to completely wipe out all except his chosen few, Noah and his family. Now, perhaps when Jesus was crucified and now in the grave, these very demons that had been there for these many years were rejoicing at the good news of the God-man's death. But the party was short-lived when the Son of God appeared to them. When he, as we read here, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now certainly I believe that this is part of what the Holy Spirit is communicating here through Paul's writings to, to the Colossians re regarding his vic Christ's victory at the cross. In verse 15, back to Colossians 2, when he says, He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
But I believe there is yet one more stunning concept that we must grasp to fully understand what the Spirit of God would have us know in this text. And that is to understand the imagery of the triumph of Christ. And in order to do that, you need to understand what a Roman triumph was. And this is the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using. You see, a Roman triumph was a spectacular display, a glorious holiday that would pay homage to a conquering Roman general and his legions that had been victorious over some foreign foe. The public would gather round to gaze upon the general and all of the armies that would come in to Rome. They would get on the walls and get on the housetops. It would be something tantamount to our ticker tape parade in New York City. That type of thing. The trumpets would blare and the drums would beat a cadence to the thousands of soldiers that would be marching. And after the long procession of the battle-scarred soldiers, behind that group you would hear the clanging of thousands and thousands of chains on the arms and the feet of those who were now being brought from a foreign land to become the slaves of Rome. And then next in the parade, they would have all of the flags and all of the standards that had been flown in the battle. All those things that had been raised in battle would now be revealed to all of the people. And they would even have huge maps and and banners depicting their conquest. They would even have massive floats with, with models on them of ships and fortresses that they had destroyed. And then in the middle of this gallant throng would come the conquering general, adorned in the regal robes that would belong to a triumphant a triumphant general. He would have the victor's crown upon his head and he would hold in his hand the ivory scepter of the Roman eagle. And he would raise his scepter in triumph, and every time he would, the people would shout his triumph. And what was fascinating is that chained to his chariot would be the defeated kings and noblemen and generals, bloodied and vanquished. Now a defeated foe. Once proud, they are now humiliated, being drugged like animals. To the slaughter. Oh, child of God, I, I hope you can see the picture here. This is the triumph that is ours because our foe has been defeated. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over sin and Satan and over death. And we have now the fullness of Christ in us. We are complete in Him. And because of this, He energizes our new nature. He has given us spiritual life and He's even disarmed our enemies. You see, sin has been routed. It has been chained to a chariot of the Lord of hosts. Satan has been defeated. He is now a, a toothless dragon. There is no more venom in his fangs. Therefore, we have nothing to be afraid of with him. And what about death? Oh, Paul has said in Romans 
I mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54, death is swallowed up in what? In victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he goes on to say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to summarize these truths as I close this morning in meter and in rhyme as we think about our triumphant Christ. All that that means for us as those who are united to Him, who have His fullness in us because we are complete in Him. Gather round, angelic host, and open wide the gates. Come, ye saints, and man your post. I feel the ground doth quake. Smell the garlands, hear the drums, see the banners wave. The army of the Lord has come, countless legions he has saved. And lo, behold, three evil fiends shackled there behind. Who are those monsters foul and mean who glare and growl and writhe? Alas, I cannot catch my breath. What joy, all words are lost. He's conquered Satan, sin and death, all vanquished at the cross. Sing the triumph song at last. Worthy is the Lamb. The victor comes with trumpet blast, our Lord, the great I Am. Let the King of glory in, the Lamb for sinners slain. Forever let our praises ring, O King, forever reign. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these glorious truths and for the way that they steal across our hearts and produce such joy and excitement knowing that someday what has just been described in Your triumph will pale in insignificance compared to all of the glory that will be Yours. Lord, we praise You for all that You have done for us. And may this resurrection day be a day that we contemplate these eternal truths and make them much more a part of our lives. And Lord, for those that do, know, do not know You as Savior, I pray that You will move upon their heart with convicting grace and cause them to become complete in You. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.